Father in heaven, our hearts break when we hear of hundreds of people who are injured and hurt and killed. Lord, we long for you to rescue us from out of all of this pain, out of all this suffering. And I thank you that you have provided a way of escape, that this isn't the end for us when we trust in Jesus. Thank you so much for the promise that when more than two or three of us are gathered together as we are this morning, that you are right here with us. Jesus, would you speak to our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. Touch us in a meaningful way. May we be transformed as we see fresh revelations of you. May your word speak to us with power. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I love to watch animals. I don't know about you, but ever since I was little, when I went to my grandma's house and she would have the Discovery Channel on, I love to watch all the different programs about all of these wild and exotic animals. So it was back in 2007 when I actually got the chance to go to Yellowstone National Park. Now, most people think about Yellowstone as the place where there are geysers and where uh, there's so many beautiful landforms that are are there in Yellowstone. But when I went to Yellowstone, I was amazed as I looked around and there's these huge bison. There were these elk. There were all these amazing animals. We were driving down the road and all of a sudden the car stopped and this black bear comes ambling right across the the road in front of us. And so I became just enraptured in thinking about all of these animals that we could see here in Yellowstone. Now my dad had some meetings at the time and Leah and I were there with my mom and we were going to drive around Yellowstone to see Yellowstone. And I began to say, you know what we need to see? We need to see a grizzly bear. Black bears, they're, they're cool, but I just want to see a grizzly bear because now that is amazing. I've seen those before on the Discovery Channel. I just really want to see a grizzly bear. So we began to drive around throughout the park. We'd wake up in the morning and we'd go driving. One time we stopped at a uh, turnout and there were a bunch of people with spotting scopes and we, we got down and we looked in the spotting scopes and there off in the distance were some wolves. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Wolves, that's great. They were like, no, 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 you, these are really hard to see. I was like, that's good. But do you know where a grizzly bear is? I really need to see a grizzly bear. They said, well... Uh, I think they've been seeing one up in the north part of the park. So we drove up there. We didn't see any grizzly bears. But then a ranger told us, he said, yeah, there's a grizzly bear. Every morning in the north meadow, there is this grizzly bear that's been feeding there every single day. Guaranteed, if you go there early in the morning, you will see this grizzly bear. I said, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to get up really early because this was on the far end of the park. It was a long drive up there. So we got up and I think it was about 4 a.m., Dragged Leah out of bed. My mom came with me. Leah hopped in the back seat. She was smart and she sprawled out in the back seat to take a nap. And we drove and drove. It was dark the entire time. But right as we were getting and driving into that meadow, we pulled into a turnout and the sun was just beginning to lighten the sky. So I'm looking out in the meadow. At first, I couldn't see anything, it was too dark. But little by little, it began to get a little brighter. I'm looking out in the meadow. Do you see it, Mom? No, I don't see it. Leah? Oh, she's still asleep. No, there's, there's no, I don't see a grizzly bear. It began to get brighter and brighter. Pretty soon we could see all the way across the meadow, and there was no grizzly bear out there. I, I couldn't see a grizzly bear anywhere. But we said, well, we'll just wait. Maybe the grizzly bear slept in this morning. Maybe the grizzly bear is still coming. So we were there looking out in this meadow. Hour passes by. Leah wakes up. She's looking out, what's out there? What are we doing here? I don't know. We were just about to leave when a tour bus pulled up and pulled into the same uh, turnout there. And a bunch of people filed out. A guy sets up a scope and people are looking with their binoculars. I'm thinking, what are they doing? So I walk over to the guy who had the scope. He was the tour guide. And I said, so, what you guys looking at? You're looking at that, I think we'd seen an eagle off in the trees. Are you looking at that eagle over there? He's like, oh yeah, yeah, I showed them that. And oh yeah, and oh, there's, there's that grizzly bear. We've just, we're looking at that. What? A grizzly bear? That's what I've been wanting to see. Can I please see the grizzly bear? Please, please. Can, it, can, I, can I look through your scope? He's like, sure, that's fine. Look through the scope. And sure enough, 
There it was. I actually have a picture of it. I don't know if you can see it, but I took my camera and I put it up to the scope to take a picture. And there all along, off in the grass, had been feeding this grizzly bear. Massive grizzly bear. And yet at that distance, I wasn't able to see this grizzly bear. Even though I'd been there, even though I'd been staring out into this meadow, I wasn't able to see this grizzly bear. So if we can get the slide up, you'll be able to see a picture of this grizzly bear. But when you... There it is. It's up in the far corner up there. It's, it's really hard to see, I know. But for me, this was extremely exciting because here is a gigantic grizzly bear. But this helped me to realize something. Sometimes there are things that we pass by and we are not able to see because we don't have the right tools or because we take too quick of a glance or because we're not really looking deep enough and we don't realize the beauty, we don't realize the power, the, the, what is really out there. I looked in this meadow and I didn't see anything. What I needed was a scope, a spotting scope to look a little further. We're living in interesting times in America where people are often uh, debating about different things that are going on. And something happened just a couple weeks ago. One of the front-running candidates of the uh, GOP party, Donald Trump, said something that has since sparked a lot of interest in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Donald Trump said this, I mean, Seventh-day Adventist, I don't know about. I just don't know about. Seventh-day Adventists, who are they? I mean, what is a Seventh-day Adventist? What are Seventh-day Adventists all about? I just don't really even know about that. Later, people were saying, you know, don't you think you should apologize? You're kind of putting down Ben Carson. He says, I honestly just said what I said. I don't know about Seventh-day Adventists. How many people don't know about Seventh-day Adventists? A lot more people are learning about Seventh-day Adventists. In fact, the Adventist Church put up a, a website, whoareadventists.org, because of this, because it sparked so much interest that people were Googling, who are Seventh-day Adventists? And they were going to the website. So they put up a special website that has some videos and some information about the Seventh-day Adventist Church so that people could look a little bit deeper. But it's all too easy to scan by on the surface. Some of the articles I read, they talked about a few distinctive things. You know, there's a lot of vegetarian Adventists. There's Adventists that uh, they, they, they worship on the seventh day, obviously. And they believe Jesus is coming soon. But I believe that a lot of people have been skimming over the surface of what it really means to be a seventh day Adventist. What it really means to believe what we believe. We've been looking at the story in Exodus. I want to invite you to go back there, Exodus chapter 24, where Moses received the Ten Commandments. Seventh-day Adventists are known for talking about God's law and how God has revealed that this is an enduring law. We talked about last week how this is a representation of his character, his character of love. Jesus says the two commandments are to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That on these two hang all the law and all the prophets. This is what it's all about. It's about his wonderful character of love. I invite you to go and check out those sermons the past couple weeks where we looked at even how more, much more beautiful this really was than we expected. Because God shows up and he reveals with his throne of sapphire to the, the people there who are on the mountain, the leaders who are there on the mountain, and he reveals this throne of sapphire. And then he says to Moses, take the stones and bring them up to me on the mountain. So the, the Hebrew seems to indicate there that, that these stones were actually beautiful stones, not just these gray uh, old Ten Commandment stones, that they were probably these beautiful sapphire stones of inestimable value. And why would God put his law on such a beautiful thing because he wanted to show us how beautiful his loving character really is. We go on and we read in Exodus 24, verse 12 is what we just talked about. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and be there and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, this is verse 13, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. He tells the elders then in verse 14 to wait there until he comes back. And then in verse 15 it says, then Moses went up into the mountain and cloud covered 
and a cloud covered the mountain. In verse 16, now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Isn't this an amazing thing? Here you have the man of God, Moses, who had so much communication with God, and yet before he can actually go up into the very presence of God, into this glorious presence of God, before he can go all the way into God's presence, he's there on the mountain for six days, searching his heart. He's there in prayer. He's there preparing his heart for this wonderful experience of seeing the glory of God in all of its splendor. Sometimes I think that I can just kind of waltz into the presence of God when really God is wanting for us to have a wholehearted, open-hearted communion with him. And in order for that to take place, we have to allow him to search our hearts and to let the sin that's in our heart be taken care of by his loving grace. It goes on to say in verse 17, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. Can you imagine what this was like? They're looking up and they see this just huge, roaring, consuming fire on the top of the mountain for six days. It's just this amazing presence of God there on the mountain. And then verse 18, so Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Can you imagine what this is like? Here you have Moses going up to receive the law that God is going to write on those beautiful tablets. He's going to write his character of love down so that people can see, this is how I want you to live in order to live a love-filled life. And God displays so much glory in this process. I mean, he has on Mount Sinai for those six, seven days, and then also for the next 40 days, there's this amazing, glorious presence of God there. Why did God want to represent his glory with uh, his law with such, in order to give his law to Moses, he gave so much glory in this whole presentation. Isn't it amazing to see how much glory is involved here? But here's the thing. All that God does to represent the beauty of the law, how wonderful the law is. You have the psalmist saying that how I love your law, that your law is, is better to me than silver or gold and it tastes better than, than honey. God says something in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 21. He's not done yet with representing the beauty of his character. This was only just the beginning of what God really wanted to show us. It was the best that he could up to this point. Isaiah 42 is a, one of the servant psalms where it talks about the servant who was going to come. And who is the servant? That's the Messiah, Jesus. It, Isaiah 53 is the most familiar one that talks about the servant being pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. So this is a, another servant psalm. And in Isaiah 42, verse 21, it says, The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will exalt the law and make it what? honorable. Here he says, even though he's done all of this in giving the law in the first place, he says, I'm going to exalt the law. I'm going to make it even more glorious. I'm going to make it even more wonderful. I'm going to make it even more beautiful, more precious than sapphire. So how did he do this? How did he make his law so wonderful, so precious? Well, we talked about last week that in Romans 13, 10, it says that love is the fulfilling of the law. And it lists right before that the specific commandments about don't commit adultery, about don't steal. All of these things are fulfilled with love. When we love, we naturally fulfill the law. When we love God with all of our hearts, and we saw that in Revelation there's pictured Babylon, this confused people of God who are lacking God's law. In contrast with those who in Revelation 14, 12, it says, here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Okay, so this is what the law is all about. It's all about love. So how does God exalt it? How does he make it even more glorious, even more beautiful, even more precious than what he gave to Moses? Let's go down to Matthew in chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes up on a mountain himself, and he gives what's called the Beatitudes. He gives the Sermon on the Mount. 
He gives his preeminent teaching, his, this beautiful teaching about the principles of his kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 17, it says this, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. There's a lot of people who would have us to believe that Jesus came in order to destroy, to get rid of, to desecrate the law. But Jesus himself says, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. But what does he go on to say? I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now the Greek word plerao that's used there is the idea of to make full, to, to fill full of, of meaning is what Jesus is saying here. I didn't come to destroy, but I came to fulfill. Just like Paul later on says that love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. I came to represent the law. I came to put the law in human flesh. So that you could see how beautiful the character of God really is. That his unselfishness, his, his love, that I could come as God in human flesh and I could reveal to you that this is what it really looks like. This is what the character of God is like. This is how beautiful God's character is. He goes on to say, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all And this is confusing in our English translation because it says is fulfilled when actually that's a different Greek word. Basically, until all the whole system, the whole thing is brought to completion, until it's brought to a close. Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. And he goes on in these teachings to teach how he was going to fill the law full of meaning. Uh, And right after that, he talks about You've heard it said in the law that you should not murder. But I say to you that you shouldn't, that that a person who even hates his brother in his heart has already committed murder. He goes down to talk about adultery. He says, you've heard it it said in the law that you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that a person in his heart who even thinks lustfully towards a woman has already committed adultery. You see what he's doing with the law. The Pharisees had taken the law and they had put it in a box and they had made it pretty and they made it to seem to be just what uh, they wanted it to be. And then they put all these rules around it to try to protect it. And he's saying, you missed the point. It goes to the heart. It's about the loving heart, the beautiful character, the unselfish character of God. And I want to restore, to exalt, to make that more beautiful, to represent to you what the law is really all about. I was 18 months old when I saw it. <clears throat> my mom and I were going through a grocery store, my, my brother, who's seven and a half years older than me, and when I saw that monkey there, it was sitting on the shelf, and as it was sitting there on the shelf, I, I saw that monkey and I said, I have to have that monkey. Well, at least that's the way my mom tells the story. It was 18 months old. I don't remember too well. But she said I was begging for this monkey and I just had to have it. So finally she gave me this monkey and I just held this monkey as close to my chest as I could. I was so excited to have monkey. I named my monkey Monkey. (laughs) And I loved monkey. I loved monkey so much that they couldn't separate me from monkey. I slept with monkey every single night. And I would, you know, when I'm sick, I still slept with monkey. And so, monkey sometimes got thrown up on, and when I wet the bed, monkey, monkey had to go through the washing machine a few times, but I loved monkey. In fact, I remember the first time that I went off to summer camp, and my mom said, you're taking monkey with you, aren't you? And I looked at monkey, I thought about my friends at summer camp, what are they going to think? I said, monkey's got to go. So I put Monkey in my suitcase, opened up the zipper so he could see out so there'd be some light. I didn't actually take him out of the suitcase, but I loved Monkey so much. Even until I was a teenager, Monkey had this precious place in my heart that my parents would try to make me feel guilty when I didn't take Monkey with me everywhere because I loved Monkey. But here's the thing. Do you think this is my Monkey? This is actually my Monkey. You see, on that day, my brother, who's seven and a half years older, he was also there, and he saw the same monkey, and he wanted it too, because he was eight years old, and he wanted a monkey just like his little brother. 
This is my brother's monkey. It doesn't even have a name. This is monkey. I want you all to meet monkey. Monkey means a lot to me. Monkey has been through a lot with me. I have loved monkey because monkey was the one that comforted me at night. Monkey was the one who, I loved monkey. Now here's the thing, when Jesus came, the Pharisees didn't like the way Jesus lived. You know, on Sabbath, he would be there and he'd be in the the, uh, synagogue and and there would be a man with a withered hand and they would all be there waiting and watching saying, what is Jesus going to do? We're going to... We're going to watch and see what Jesus does. Because they made all kinds of rules that you couldn't break. Like how far you could walk and certain things that you could do on the Sabbath. Things that God had never intended the law to do. Because the law was about love. It was about being unselfish. And Jesus came to exalt the law. He came to live it out and to show us how incredibly beautiful it was. So he said, no, you can't treat the law like that. You need to treat the law as a law of love. And so he would gladly stand up to the Pharisees and he would heal that sick person. Even though he knew that it would anger them and he could have healed them on another day, he would go ahead and do good. He would go ahead and love despite the fact that those Pharisees would condemn him. Jesus showed us what it was like to love. I would say to you that Jesus treated the law like I treated monkey. Monkey is the one that's really loved. Although it may look a little messy, I feel bad for my brother's monkey because it doesn't even have a name. It really wasn't loved. While monkey truly experienced the love of God. Jesus doesn't want for the law to be burdensome. You remember what we read last week from 1 John? said, this is the love of God, that you keep his commandments And his commandments are not burdensome. That is what God wants for us. He wants for us to experience the precious love of God. He wants us to be so in love with him that keeping the commandments comes out of our heart of love for him. That's what Jesus experienced. Go with me to John chapter 15 and verse 9. In John chapter 15, Jesus tells us how to experience the love of God like he experienced it. Now, how much would you say that The Father loved Jesus. That's a lot of love, isn't it? I mean, here they are. They've existed throughout eternity. This is the Father, the first person of the Godhead with the second person of the Godhead. And they have had this close relationship with the Holy Spirit, the three of them, throughout eternity. The amount of love there is almost unfathomable. And yet, Jesus says this about you and me in verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. The same way that the Father feels about Jesus, he says he feels about you. He loves you with that same incredible love. He wants to be close to you. He wants that friendship with you just in the same level that Jesus and the Father, that that Jesus says that I shared with the Father. That's a lot of love. I want to experience that love in my life, don't you? I have to be honest that sometimes I've put God as far off. I put God as a God that doesn't want that close of a relationship with me. And yet, he says that he's loved me just like he loved Jesus. It goes on to say this in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus says, this is what I came to do. I came to to show you how you can experience this amazing, loving relationship with the Father. And that is if you keep my commandments. Because this is exactly how I've lived my life. I've, I've lived and I've walked a perfect life. I've followed the Father's commandments perfectly. And do you see how wonderful it is? Look at how much the disciples loved him. You look at the disciple John as he would recline there on Jesus' breast at the the Last Supper because he just loved him so much. You look at Jesus who was always unselfish, always looking out for the good of others, always putting everyone else before himself. Jesus who would heal those who were sick. Jesus who was constantly teaching things to bring people peace, to bring people joy. He showed them this incredible love that the Father wanted for them to have. 
And then he says, if you want to abide in this love, you want to experience this same loving fellowship, then what you need to do is to keep the commandments just like I have kept the commandments. In John, 1 John 2 verse 6, he says, you should walk even as I also have walked. This is what Jesus has intended for us, that he fulfilled the law, he he made the law glorious, he made it beautiful so that we could recognize that in Jesus is what God intends for you and me. This beautiful character of God, he doesn't just want for us to look at it and be amazed, but he wants to actually give us this amazing love. He wants us to experience it for ourselves. Isn't that incredible to think about the love of God and to think about how he wants for us to experience that incredible love in our lives. Go with me to Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew 17, we find a picture of the glory of God. And when, when I hear somebody talking about the glory of God, and I hear a beautiful song about the glory of God, I think about Mount Sinai, and I think about this consuming fire, and I think about fireworks and all this majesty and glory. What is God's glory truly all about? Let's read actually the verse leading into chapter 17. Matthew 16, verse 28 says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some of you standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Can you imagine how excited this made the disciples? Here Jesus promises them, there are some of you who are standing here who won't have to die, but you're going to actually see the kingdom of God coming in his glory. So then in verse 17, we see this kingdom come. Sorry, chapter 17. Verse 1 says, Now after six days, sounds familiar, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Mark says that his clothes became whiter than any launderer could possibly have made them. In the end, we read that there's going to be a bride who wears white. A bride who's prepared herself for a special wedding. But this also has pictures back to prophecies that we read about in Daniel. About the Son of Man who is clothed with all this brilliance and glory. This is what Jesus is all about. This is what Jesus looked like, and yet he had cloaked himself in humility. He had cloaked himself with, such, uh, hu- with human flesh for so long that they hadn't recognized how beautiful he truly was. But if you go to Colossians, the, our scripture reading, Colossians chapter 1, it tells us about this incredible glory of God. We're going to go back to... Matthew in just a minute, but go over with me to Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at this again real quickly. Verse 12 says, sorry, we'll skip down. Colossians chapter 1, and we will start with verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Do you get that? Jesus came to reveal to us what God is all about, what God actually looks like. He came to reveal to us the beauty, the wonder, the glory of God, God's loving character, his unselfishness. Jesus, when you want to know what is my Father in heaven like, just look at Jesus. If you love Jesus, then you can know that you love your Father in heaven. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, Firstborn doesn't mean that he originated, but instead of that, it means that he is unique. He is the the prototype. He is the the special son of God. It doesn't mean that he had a beginning because we know that he's the alpha and the omega, that he had no beginning. Verse 16, for by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. 
Jesus is everything. Paul's trying to use the biggest language that the human language can use to possibly describe. Jesus is wonderful. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. Everything consists in him. Everything was made by him. Everything comes from Jesus. In John chapter 1, it describes Jesus similar language. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The Greek is logos, meaning the the wisdom, the the Word of God, the, the revelation of God. Jesus has always been the person in the Godhead who has revealed to us what Jesus, what God is all about. One author put it that it's the thought of God made audible or visible to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, so he is God, and he was together with God. You know, talking about love and unselfishness, you can't have love and unselfishness without more than one person. Have you tried to be unselfish and caring about others in a a closet? (laughs) You could do it, I guess, by praying for them. (laughs) But Ultimately, you need another person, another being, in order to be unselfishly loving. And that's why throughout eternity we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have been unselfishly enjoying this beautiful picture of love that God's character is all about and that he wants you and I to experience, that he's gone to an infinite price to expose to us and to reveal to us so that we could become participators in it. Again, it says in... Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Everything was made through Jesus. Jesus is our creator, and this is why we worship him. We worship him as our creator, and this is what Seventh-day Adventists are all about. Seventh-day Adventists, Donald Trump said, I don't know about. Well, let me tell you, Donald Trump. Let me tell you if, if you haven't heard before about Seventh-day Adventists, but Seventh-day Adventists are all about Jesus Christ because Jesus is our creator. You wonder why we worship on the seventh day? You have a coworker who asks you, what, what does it mean to be a Seventh-day Adventist? Well, I worship on the seventh-day Sabbath. Why do we worship on the seventh-day Sabbath? Because in the fourth commandment, it says that remember him who created the heavens and the earth. Who created the heavens and the earth? Jesus. And so we come together to worship Jesus because Jesus created the heavens and the earth. And in order to remember Jesus, he says, I've made a special day for you. A day where you and I can remember the incredible relationship that I want to have with you. Like we talked about last week, how Leah, when she sets aside a a date time for us, that's a special time. That's something to be excited about, not something for me to be watching my clock or looking off in the distance and daydreaming about other things. It's about Leah and I. And the same thing in our relationship with God. He says, I want you to worship Jesus, the creator. I want you to have a special relationship with your best friend that I want to grow and expand. And and because it's such a valuable thing, I want to give you a gift that nobody could possibly take away. And that is a gift of 24 hours. This is something that you can experience anywhere on the planet. Nothing can... You could be thrown in prison, you could be tortured, anything could happen, and yet that 24 hours is still going to come to you. You're still going to experience the incredible gift of the Sabbath because you are able to worship your Creator. That's what Seventh-day Adventists are all about, Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, loving Jesus with our whole heart, with our whole soul, with all of our strength, and our neighbor as ourself. Going back to Matthew chapter 17, you know, this is a story that's told in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and each of them adds some beautiful pictures to it. Luke describes that they went up on this mountain to spend time in prayer, and that as they were praying, the disciples fell asleep. But this beautiful picture of the glory of Jesus, it says, when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. Kind of like us there sitting in the car on that edge of the meadow in Yellowstone looking off. And when we fully realized what was out there, I finally was ecstatic because I was seeing what I wanted to see all along. 
I don't know about you, but maybe you have known about the Bible, you've known about Jesus, you've known about the law, and yet maybe there hasn't been this beautiful picture of Jesus like he wanted for us to have. Maybe it hasn't always been about a relationship with Jesus, but that is what the Bible is all about. It's about bringing us into a closer relationship with God. That's what prophecy is all about. It's warning us about an antichrist power who's going to come and who already is present. Even in the days of Paul, he said that the lawless one is already beginning to work. This this power that's seeking to distract us from Jesus. Anything in our religion that distracts us from Jesus can be an antichrist to us. You see, that's what the Antichrist is all about. And if in the process of exposing Antichrist and looking at Antichrist, these are important things that we need to understand and we need to know. But if that distracts me from Jesus, then I'm in as much trouble as anybody else. Because Jesus is the central and focal point of all of Bible prophecy. That's what Revelation is all about. It says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's about seeing a beautiful picture of God, the character of God revealed in the one who became flesh, Jesus. In John 14, it says, and the word tabernacled among us. It it became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld Jesus glory when he came down and he became a man and he revealed to us what true love is all about. When we look at the cross and we see that on the cross Jesus was there and he was being mocked, he was being spit upon, he was all these different things that happened to Jesus and we see the character of God there. A character that says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. A a character that looks for the best in others. A character that that loves others no matter what they do to them. Wouldn't you love to have a friend like that? Who wouldn't want to have a best friend who always is looking out for your good? Who is going to be the one to wash your feet first? Who's going to be there to do whatever you need in your life? Who puts your needs before their own? That's what Jesus reveals to us. That God is all about and that he wants you and I to be all about. And so on this mountain in Matthew 17, verse 2, it said that he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. He's revealing to them that, yeah, that glory that you're wanting to see, it is real. It is, I am full of power. But yet, how he really wanted to represent it was by the way he walked, by the way he lived. Verse 3, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to him, talking with him. So here he reveals what the kingdom of of God is all about as he reveals the one who, Moses, who had died on Mount Pisgah and who had been later resurrected as Jude tells us and taken to heaven. And he represents Elijah who was taken straight to heaven in that fiery chariot. Here you have those who are going to be resurrected and you have those who are going to be translated to heaven, who are transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye as 1 Corinthians 15 says. Here they see the kingdom of God represented just like he promised. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's just set up camp here, Jesus. He's still missing the point of what Jesus wants for him. That Jesus wants for him to realize the beauty of God's loving character and to represent that to the world. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. This is my Son. I'm, I'm well pleased in him because he's lived that law, that righteous character perfectly. He has unselfishly loved people for his entire life. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said to them, Arise and do not be afraid. Then verse 8, don't miss this. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. They were distracted. They thought, well, this is great. Here's Moses. Here's Elijah. Here's all these different things. And so often our religion can become so distracting 
when what we need is Jesus only. In fact, one of the founders of the Adventist church in Acts of the Apostles wrote this great book about the early church. In Acts of the Apostles, page 64, says this, Jesus only. In these words is contained the secret of the life and power that marked the history of the early church. Jesus only. This is why we see such a powerful movement in Acts. This is why the gospel went to the whole world in one generation. Because they had Jesus only as their focus. I want that same focus. How about you? I want it to be all about Jesus. Our Adventist pioneers had it right. That was the focus of their lives. In The Faith I Live By, page 50, it says this, There is one great central truth to be kept ever before the mind in the searching of the scriptures, Christ and him crucified. Every other truth is invested with influence and power corresponding to its relation to this theme. Every truth that we hold dear is only of value in relationship to Jesus and him crucified. This is everything to us. Jesus is everything. Jesus created us. He sustains us. And that's why we want to keep the law. That's why we want to be among those who in Revelation 14, 12 are standing there keeping the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. We want to have such a close relationship with Jesus that when troubles come, and they will come in our lifetime. And when the time of trouble comes, when the the end times come, that we are so in love with Jesus that we're willing to go through anything with him. This morning in our young adult Sabbath school class, we were looking at the story about how the disciples were beaten. And as they were beaten, they walked away from that rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They loved Jesus so much that they said, praise God. We got to suffer. This was wonderful because they loved Jesus so much. And I have to admit, I want to love Jesus like that. I want to be filled with a whole lot more love for Jesus so that I can love the world like he loved it. In Signs of the Times, this is another early Adventist publication. 1896, September 3, we're answering that question of Donald Trump. What is a Seventh-day Adventist all about? As the mind dwells upon Christ, the character is molded after the similitude. The thoughts are pervaded with a sense of his goodness, his love. We contemplate his character, and thus he is in all our thoughts. His love encloses us. If we gaze even for a moment upon the sun and its meridian glory, when we turn away our eyes, the image of the sun will appear in everything upon which we look. Don't do this. But I did do this as a kid. I remember driving along for hours on end. My parents would often travel on the weekends. And I remember looking out and seeing the sun there and being like, I wonder what would happen if I stare at the sun. (laughs) And you look at the sun and pretty soon you see uh, just these flashes. And and when you look away, you see this round glowing dot everywhere you look. It's pretty amazing. (laughs) Don't do it. it. It's really harmful for your eyes. It's not a good thing at all. Thus it is when we behold Jesus. Everything we look upon reflects his image, the son of righteousness. We cannot see anything else or talk of anything else. Nothing else matters once you see the beauty, the wonderful glory of Jesus. This is what Seventh-day Adventists are all about. Jesus and Jesus only. Everything else flows out of that. All of our fundamental beliefs are just lenses through which we see the love of Jesus. They're important because they reveal important truths of the Bible to us. And I want to invite you, if you haven't gotten a chance to look deeper at the Bible and the things that Seventh-day Adventists believe, sign up for these studies. The, the It is written studies in the back will have these flyers that are really simple. You can, have, you can hand them to a neighbor when they ask you, what's the Seventh-day Adventist all about? You can hand them one of these cards and they can fill it out and send in requests to find out more about what the Bible teaches about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus and Jesus only. This Signs of the Times goes on to say, Jesus Christ is everything to us. The first, the last. The best in everything. Jesus Christ, his spirit and character colors everything. It is the warp and the woof. The very texture of our entire being. Jesus is everything. 
Do you know him? Is he everything to you? I realize that I need to spend a lot more time where the disciples were, fixing my eyes on Jesus until I finally see Jesus only. Because there are a whole lot of distractions. There are a whole lot of things that divert my attention when really what I need to see is Jesus and Jesus only. I have a, there's a great book called All About Jesus by Lee Venden. And he reads this poem in it. He says, is Jesus enough? Are you troubled and confused? He's the wonderful counselor. Are you tense? He's the prince of peace. Are you uncertain? He's the cornerstone and the solid rock. Are you let down? He is faithful. Are you lonely? He's the friend who is closer. Are you defenseless? He's the advocate. Are you in the dark? He is the light. Are you surrounded by difficulties? He is the deliverer. Are you sinful? He is our righteousness. Are you bereaved? He is the resurrection and the life. Are you helpless? He is Savior. Are you hungry and thirsty? He is the bread and the day spring. Are you searching? He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the keeper of creation and the creator of all. He is the architect of the universe, and he's the manager of time. He always was and he always is and he always will be unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, but never undone. He is light, love, longevity, and Lord. His goodness, gentleness, grace, and guide, he is God. He is holy, righteous, mighty, powerful, pure. He is savior, sanctifier, redeemer, friend. He is peace, he is joy, he is comfort, he is hope, he is eternal, he is ancient of days. He is ruler of rulers and king of kings. The world can't understand him, armies can't defeat him, the schools can't explain him, the leaders can't ignore him, the Pharisees couldn't confuse him, Herod couldn't kill him, Nero couldn't crush him, Hitler couldn't silence him, the New Age can't replace him, and Phil Donahue can't explain him away. He will never leave you, he will never forsake you, he will never mislead you, he will never overlook you, he will never forget you. When you fall, he will lift you up. When you fail, he will forgive. When you are weak, he is strong. When you are lost, he is the way. When you are afraid, he is courage. When you are stumbling, he is steady. When you are hurt, he will heal. When you are broken, he mends. When you are blind, he leads. When you are hungry, he feeds. When you face trials, he's with you. When you face persecution, he'll shield you. When you face problems, he will comfort you. When you face loss, he will provide. When you face death, he is the resurrection and he holds the keys to the grave. He is everything for everybody, everywhere, every time, in every way. He is God, he is faithful, and he is enough. Friends, it's about Jesus and Jesus only. Jesus is everything. And like the disciples, we need to come to the place where we finally are fully awake and we see the glory of God and it is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus who revealed the mercy, the love, the unselfishness of God that he wants for us to have in our lives. And so when somebody asks you, as is going to happen more and more in the times we're living in, what is a Seventh-day Adventist all about? Please, don't start with telling them about the mark of the beast. Because the mark of the beast is simply to direct us to Jesus. Start with telling them, as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe in Jesus only. And we believe in all of the Bible as revealing Jesus. Just like Jesus said in John chapter 5 when the Pharisees were talking about Scripture, he said, these things are written because they, uh, you search the Scriptures for in them, you think that you have life, but these are they which testify of me. The whole Bible is about Jesus, and that's why we're so passionate about the Jesus, about the whole Bible. That's why we're passionate about the law, because the law points us to Jesus. It's to lead us to Jesus. So I want to conclude by appealing to you to take time every day to fix your eyes on Jesus, to develop that relationship that takes time to mature. It takes time to be together in order for a relationship to grow. I love In Desire of Ages, a book that I would highly recommend to you if you want to fix your eyes on Jesus, you want to see more about his loving character, his incredible life. Desire of Ages, page 83, it says this, it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. That sounds like a lot of time, but when Jesus is everything, 
that's really not very much time out of 24 hours. It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point. Let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing one. As we thus dwell upon the great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant. Our love will be quickened. And we will be more deeply imbued with his spirit. I want for you to have the opportunity to commit to Jesus. I want to fix my eyes on you. I want to see Jesus only. I want to see your glory. So as I pray, I'm going to just leave a time of silence in my prayer for you to make a commitment that Jesus, I'm going to take time to be focused on you. Unhurried time. Time that is just focused on you and your incredible life. If you don't know where to start, go to the Gospels. Go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or go and read Isaiah chapter 53 or Psalm chapter 22. Beautiful pictures of Jesus. All of Scripture is to point us to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for revealing your love that you have for us in Jesus. Thank you for revealing that the law is so much more than we thought. It's so much more than just something that you wrote down on tablets of stone, but it's something so beautiful, so unselfish, so full of love. And we only see it when we look at Jesus. So today, Lord, we want to make a special commitment that we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus. Every day, there's only about 50 days left in this year, and why not at least commit for the rest of this year that We're going to take an hour every single day to spend thoughtfully considering the life of Jesus. In the silence of our own hearts, we just want to make a commitment. Whatever length of time that may be, but we want to commit to sit at your feet and to behold your beauty. Thank you, Jesus, that you ever live to make intercession for us, that you are always open to hear our prayers, that prayer is just simply opening our hearts to a friend. Thank you for giving us the strength to fix our eyes on Jesus. Thank you for giving us the answer to what Seventh-day Adventists are all about, and that is Jesus only. But Jesus, I recognize in my own life, so often I get distracted And I just want to make a new commitment this morning. From here on out, it's about Jesus and Jesus only. Lord, bless us this week as we go to live our lives for Jesus and Jesus only. In your precious name we pray. Amen.